everybody. Thanks again for tuning in to KOVE 1330 AM, 107.7 FM, Community Connected. You are listening to the second episode of the National Museum of Military Vehicles, KOVE embed report where we talk with ray whitley the curator for the national museum uh, about a number of topics uh, that relate to the museum to war and history we, we're really excited about moving on to the second episode and just kind of seeing where this series takes us uh, we got some pretty good uh, uh feedback on the first episode where we just kind of chatted about uh, the potentiality of the series ray gave us a background on himself his his war history background and how this became such a passionate subject for him as well before we dive into uh, today's subject matter, though, I do want to ask, Ray, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you doing? Today? I'm great. Uh, appreciate you coming in uh, for the second episode of the Embed Report. We're looking forward to uh, hearing some updates about the museum and then uh, kind of focusing on one of the new displays and then uh, segging from there into how it relates to Wyoming. But before we get into all of that, you guys are having kind of a refresh at the museum, some spring cleaning going on, right? We are. We are. There's going to be a number of new uh, vehicles, displays put up and, uh, and open to the public by May. So it should be really, uh, really refreshing uh, to use the term, but uh-huh. yeah, it's, it's perfect. It's a number of really nice display changes, uh, highlighting some other aspects not previously talked about. Uh, one being uh, Iwo Jima, the Battle of uh, Iwo Jima, as well as an expansion into the importance of the Battle of Okinawa. Well, this sounds amazing. I mean, I'm looking forward to, because uh, you guys, it's, it's an ever-evolving thing at the museum. It's not just, here's our displays, it's what's going to be forever. It's an ongoing, ever-changing process, correct? Yeah, we're always going to want to talk about new topics, uh, you know, kind of expand on topics previously talked about. For example, uh, the importance of the Red Ball Express and the logistics in Europe after uh, the invasion in Normandy. That's being expanded upon on this refresh as well. So it's, it, it is never-ending. Uh, there's there's always new uh, material to teach the public and uh, and educate on. Definitely. And as, as time gets closer to that, too, I'd love to uh, uh, have a segment of the episode talk about the Red Ball Express, too, as much as we can without... Because that's the thing we want to toe the line on the show of uh, making sure that you know that you listeners need to know. Go check out the museum, but uh, we do want to give some of the information uh, to folks about what to expect, and then so, kind of uh, some of the side stories uh, within the walls of the history. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, talking about side stories, one of the uh, refresh uh, topics that we're expanding on is the uh, Battle of Okinawa. Okay. Of course, the Battle of Okinawa being the largest uh, amphibious campaign in the Pacific, the last of the uh, large campaigns in. World War II. Uh, we are doing Operation Iceberg, as it was called, uh, there at Okinawa in preparation for a ground invasion of Japan, which thankfully does not occur. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, one of the uh, Marines uh, uh, there at Okinawa was a, a local to Wyoming, and his name was Adam uh, Raymond. He preferred Ray uh, Nyman. And uh, we have his collection that's going to be going on display. Uh, His collection is vast, uh, really, really expansive throughout his whole time serving with the Marines in World War II. Uh, His his Marine career starts with a very interesting aspect. Uh, He was a Marine Raider uh, with 2nd Raider Marine Battalion. What does that mean for any of our listeners who don't know? Well, it would be Special Forces of Etera. You bet. You bet. These guys were trained in very unconventional warfare uh, in terrain that we did not have a lot of experience in. Mm -hmm. That would be the Pacific in those jungle environs. And uh, his specific job 
uh, was to be part of a war dog company. He would take his trained canines into combat and uh, basically uh, look for the enemy, obviously in a very small uh, sized uh, platoons uh, or, or even sometimes just him and one other handler and their dogs going out and, and look for holdouts, snipers, uh, those type of things. Very unconventional warfare for us up to that ta- time. Uh, what were some of the specific ways that they were utilized, that the, the dogs were utilized once they were on the land then? I mean, they were sniffing things out, uh, like you said, figuring it out as they as they were going just as we were. Sure. So uh, just like today, you would have dogs that were specifically trained to find munitions, landmines. That training was actually in California for those dogs. Uh, you had others that were there to track, looking for the enemy. Uh, snipers, for example, holdouts uh, in you know, some of those bunker systems. Uh, so they would be trained somewhere just to be uh, sentry, uh, you know, guarding POWs or munitions plants here at home. And so those sentry dogs had a different type of training. And then you had some that were really meant to attack. Uh, they were to go in, flush out the enemy, yeah, try to get them to expose their positions. How do you go about training th- those animals to something so so specific like that? Yeah, well, you know, the training occurred, uh, obviously, as we were kind of learning as we went. Right. Uh, but it, they occurred in centralized facilities. One pretty close to us was in Fort Robinson, Nebraska. Uh, that was kind of one of the central training facilities. Another one was uh, obviously going to be in the, the California region for preparation of the Pacific, trying to get people, uh, accl- or the dogs rather, acclimated uh, to those conditions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When we got into uh, the canine training, we didn't really know where the program was going to go. And that program, by the way, was called Dogs for Defense. Dogs for Defense. Dogs and once again, this is the War Dog Company, right? <laughs> this is the War Dog Company. So and, cool. And, so yes. cool. And, uh, you know, just like uh, people are volunteering to join the military for the uh, defense of the nation in World War II, uh, families are actually volunteering their dogs. And so there's a call out and uh, families are, are basically submitting their canine. Uh, to join these uh, ward dog companies. They went through an enlistment process, obviously a physical examination. And uh, if your dog was accepted, you had the choice of either asking for that dog to be returned at the end of the war or to be uh, given indefinitely to the military. You got a card, and that card said that your dog's been accepted. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really uh, heartwarming story. You were allowed to write to your dog <laughs> oh my um, to let them know you were thinking of them. <laughs> it's easy to, uh, to, to you know, um, how cute this is, how adorable it is. But, I mean, this is a very serious uh, uh, service that they're providing. I yes. mean, th- these are hero dogs. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, to the point to where, uh, you know, there's one Chips uh, that served in the Pacific that uh, received a silver star. Wow. Uh, But these are definitely hero dogs. They are credited with so many uh, examples of bravery. And and like I said, uh, Ray is uh, out there with his dog. Uh, One particular dog that he served uh, a lot of campaigns and battles with was Judy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Judy was a Doberman, and Dobermans were actually the preferred animal uh, during World War II for the Marines. They really liked their Dobies, and uh, so him and Judy were involved in the battles of Guam, uh, the uh, Bougainville campaign, and uh, it's going to be at a certain point in Judy's career uh, that she will uh, receive shell shock. Uh, she will be a victim of PTSD. Wow. And have to be taken out of service, and uh, never quite recovers. And and you can see in Ray's letters that he's writing home 
that this severely impacted him as well. Oh, I to bet. To watch his dog mentally uh, deteriorate. Is there a way that they're commemorated or how do folks uh, learn more about this too? Well, they are commemorated. There's actually a National War Dog Cemetery. Good, uh, good. There should be. Um, it's actually on the island of Guam. Uh, wow. So the naval installation in Guam uh, has uh, a lot of the marine war dogs that were used in the Pacific buried there. Uh, of the 60 dogs, for example, that landed on Guadalcanal, 20 will uh, lose their life in battle, 25 more uh, later due to uh, casualties or injuries incurred during the battle. Uh, so those dogs, as well as a number of other dogs in the Pacific Theater, are buried there in Guam. Uh, there are a few other places here, uh, stateside, that also have memorials as far as statues, but the National Cemetery for those dogs is in Guam. Well, we need to get another one here in the States, maybe in Wyoming, maybe at the Museum of Military Vehicles, but for now, at the very least, that's so cool that they uh, that they have that just in general. Yes, yes, it is. Now, I do want to circle back. Uh, you mentioned Bougainville. That was one that I'm not as familiar with, and I think our listeners may not be as familiar with uh, as they are with Guam and Guadalcanal. Well, the Bougainville campaign uh, really uh, begins towards the end of 1943, so November 1st. And it's going to be a campaign that will actually uh, end in 1945. Okay. You have a number of island chains involved in the Bougainville campaign, the Solomons, part of New Guinea. And so it's not necessarily one particular island, but where uh, Ray Nyman served would have been the initial stages of that campaign, so the end of 1943. Mid-war, you know, and and early in our Pacific campaigns, uh, and very uh, uh, costly. Uh, It's it's really getting us uh, into these jungle campaigns uh, that we were really not familiar with. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bougainville, like Guadalcanal before it, um, taught us lessons on the fly. And uh, by the time we get those lessons perfected, that we see that the enemy changes up the tactics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's going to be seen tremendously in campaigns like Iwo Jima and then, of course, the Battle of Okinawa. And the tactic change is no longer are we being uh, hit with resistance from the enemy uh, at the beachhead. Uh, We're actually allowed to get onto the island unopposed. In the Battle of Okinawa, we land uh, Easter of 1945, and uh, within the first few days, uh, we take very little casualties. Uh, That drastically changes by the 6th, where we are now on the interior of the island, and the Japanese ramp up uh, kamikaze strikes uh, on our naval uh, support out in the the ocean uh, around the island, and then we start to hit the resistance within the interior. And this is done through cave systems, bunker systems, uh, that again, we had not necessarily been able to knock out. And how could you, I mean, and they have so much um, advantage then at that point from how to, knowing how to navigate all those systems. Very much so. You know, your, your, your standard textbook uh, invasion of, a, of an island, for example, is going to be aerial naval bombardment. And then you send your ground forces in. Uh-huh. Uh, that did not have an effect on Guadalcanal because the bombardment before you sent in your ground forces did not necessarily uh, knock out the enemy. Mm-hmm. We were able to weather that bombardment. And we see that uh, in opposition once we get to the interior. We have a few things on the agenda as far as uh, weapons that can be used, uh, one being a flamethrower. Uh, but the man-portable flamethrower, 
uh, has limitations, uh, limitations in a number of ways, not just in uh, your distance that you're able to use that weapon, uh, but obviously limitations in the exposure of the uh, Marine or soldier carrying that right. stem a target. Can you explain the difference between the, the uh, obviously portable, meaning they can take it with them, but right. what is the difference in um, the portable ones and the stationary ones? Well, we didn't really use too many stationary ones, you know, at that point, uh, because you need to continue to move, uh, take ground, and then uh, hold that ground and move on to the next objective. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're finding, though, is we need to get these more uh, protected. Uh, so we're going to do that with putting them onto vehicles. Landing vehicle tracks, LVTs, uh, will be turned into portable uh, mobile flamethrowers. Uh, you have uh, Sherman tanks mm-hmm, that will mm-hmm. also uh, have that capability. And the, the Navy CBs, for example, will be doing that for the Marines going onto those islands. And so that's uh, another couple of vehicles that we're bringing in uh, for the displays are these uh, portable flamethrowers attached to vehicles. So folks will be able to see exactly yes. what you're talking about at the uh, museum and one of these new displays. Yes, exactly. So that will be uh, showcased in the uh, new display at the battle, uh, talking about the Battle of Iwo Jima. I think that's a good segue into talking about um, some of the uh, aquatic vehicles that folks just might not know about and how they were used. Yeah, well, you know, these amphibious landings uh, are something that, again, we're having to figure out. uh, On the fly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the very uh, first number of vehicles that land on Iwo Jima are all going to be uh, LVTs carrying those Marines uh, into the initial stage of the invasion. And uh, those LVTs, landing vehicle track, are going to be able to act as uh, waterborne vehicles carrying the Marines onto the shore. And then with this flamethrower attachment, uh, our capability uh, gets you well into the island and hopefully knock out some of those bunkers and cave systems. Where did uh, Bougainville fit in uh, the the whole chess piece of the war at that time? Uh, You've got those campaigns uh, towards the later stages of 43. So that's, you know, uh, by the time you get into April of 45, we're in our last stages of the Pacific Theater. Not to say that that's going to be over in in April. Uh, Right, right. 82 days for us to conquer the island of Okinawa. You know, we are towards the end of the campaign uh, by 45. You know, mid 45. Even then, you do have some holdout islands. Uh, it's the last major campaign, Okinawa. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But of course, you have some of those islands that had uh, holdout Japanese resistance for, for quite some time. Can uh, museum goers have uh, any exposure to any of those stories when, when they're taking the tours? Uh, we, we, we mentioned that Ray Nyman, uh, for part of his life, lived here in Wyoming, Hewlett, Wyoming. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what of his story is focused on when folks are going to, will this be more for the new display or? It will be, it will be. And, uh, you know, we, we will be talking about the battle of Okinawa, uh, and then using his action with the sixth Marine division at that point, uh, to kind of open up his, uh, story as, as an example of, you know, one of the thousands and thousands of Marines that were there on the island. And that's just such a cool, cool story. And I love taking these little kind of tangents into these dives about specific folks like Ray Nyman and the War Dog Company, and then learning more about the uh, amphibious uh, vehicles that were used. This is just a general question that I had for that. Are those harder to come by for collections like are at the museum, uh, the, the amphibious vehicles? They are. 
They are. Uh, you know, you have a number of updates throughout the war, so the earlier uh, versions are going to be harder to find. They were harder to find by the end of the war because they had updates uh, as, the, as the years went on through World War II. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but they are hard to find. Uh, we have a pretty extensive uh, number of guys who work for the museum in the maintenance and restoration shop. And, and so, that's why I asked that, because I just assumed that with uh, if you're figuring out the technology on the fly, there's got to be a lot of uh, uh, degradation over time to the uh, the, the water uh, yeah, well, vehicles. Of course, of course, the salt water uh, definitely was not conducive to preservation. Right, right. Um, but yeah, we those guys are, are top-notch. They bring these things to life. Uh, they make them displayable, functional. And uh, so, yeah, we could not uh, have these displays without having uh, the technical expertise of those gentlemen that work for the restoration shop. Well, and it's such, as we talked about in the last episode, such an immersive uh, tour when you're going to the National Museum of Military Vehicles. And uh, it, it feels like it's hands-on, but it's not. You know, don't don't touch. But uh, one thing that we did want to talk about while you're here today, that there's going to be an opportunity for something called hands-on history, correct? There is. So we uh, had this program last year, and uh, it's a coupling our partnership with CWC. And uh, we're going to begin it again this year. And so uh, we will have the first hands-on history, uh, which will actually be uh, able to have the public, after they've signed up, going to the CWC website, come for uh, one of three evenings, put on the curator gloves, and uh, actually handle artifacts to include the Ray Nyman collection. Cool. We are going to have a number of his effects that will be going on display in the cases. And before we do that, we're going to have the the ability for the public to look at those up close. You know, the the really interesting thing about uh, Mr. Nyman is uh, he's he's going into these cave systems, he's going into these bunkers, and he's uh, able to gather intelligence. Mm-hmm. And um, so there are a lot of personal effects that he uh, captured uh, in that intelligence gathering that were from Japanese. So you're able to actually look at letters, books, photos uh, that he was getting from uh, Japanese. Uh, they're on the island as he was uh, acquiring information. That's fascinating. And then folks will be, uh, be able to have the opportunity to hold those items in their hands with gloves. With yes, gloves. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, when are those dates going to be again? Uh, well, we have uh, three different uh, dates, and so that will be... Uh, April, I think, yeah, 5th, 7th, and 8th. Correct, correct. And uh, so the times and registration will be on the CWC website. Okay, and they'll be able to direct you uh, as far as as uh, we're getting those things closer to, to having. Totally. And in terms of uh, some of the new things that are going to be coming to the National Museum of Military Vehicles, uh, you said that's going to be mostly in May, right? What's the time frame looking for some of those new displays? Well, we're going to have uh, everything in place by the beginning of May. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's going to be fast and furious in between. Uh-huh. All hands uh-huh. on deck. Uh, bringing in things like an M22 Locust, a couple of, uh, you know, which is a small, uh, meant-to-be airborne tank. Okay. That could be brought in. Uh, wow. Lighter. Uh, we're going to have a number of very interesting uh, vehicles being brought in, some changes, like I said, uh, expansion of Okinawa, introduction to the history of the Battle of Iwo Jima. Anything else going on with the museum that folks should know uh, upcoming, or are we uh, going to be adjusting out of the winter hours anytime soon? Well, yes. By the time we get into uh, into May, we will go back to our seven days a week schedule. Yeah, looking forward to uh, all of the things that will be coming with uh, the new exhibits, the new displays, new programs, uh, and, and the crowds for the summer. So it should be 
outstanding. Should be outstanding. And just once again, for our listeners, this is always just kind of meant to be a teaser of some of the things that folks are going to be able to experience at the museum. So make sure after you give the Embed Report a listen uh, to go to the museum and check out the uh, display that's going to be featuring uh, Ray Nyman and the whole history of the War Dog Company. This was very fascinating. So thank you for bringing this up today. Thank you. All right. We're going to go ahead and wrap things up here for today. Uh, Actually, one last question. How can folks um, stay up to date on things going on with the museum? What's the best way? The best way would probably be through our Facebook. Okay. Uh, Going through Facebook, going on to our website. Uh, Both of those are are updated uh, regularly and, and have that information at hand. Perfect. So be on the lookout for this interview being posted on county10.com and uh, possibly from the museum itself. And be on the lookout for more updates on all of the cool things that the National Museum of the Military Vehicles has in store going into the summer months. Ray, as always, thanks for coming by today. Thank you, Vince. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we come back more coffee time after a quick word from our sponsors. (laughs) 